John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 674.NA0108, certificate number 33180, the Johnstown Flood. Not long ago, we added the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 to the omnibus. I'm so grateful we did. (laughs) Really? You have deep, deep feelings about it? Like it just as a salute to the... To those we lost and the survivors? Yes. Never I, forget. I will always remember. But also, um, yeah, I think about it now every morning. The Lisbon earthquake. Yeah. As, I, you're, as you're brushing your teeth. I used to only think of it, you know, now and again, but now it's firmly lodged. Raising in, a in glass. In my commemorative wall, you know, every morning I, I pour a little bit out for all my dead homies. Raising a glass of Madeira yeah. to the good ones, the real ones we lost. Uh, I think the reason why... I was interested in the Lisbon earthquake is when I found out for the, for so long, for centuries thereafter, it was kind of the symbol of a terrible thing. You know, like when people think about disasters, it was their Pearl Harbor. It was their, yeah. Pearl Harbor, San Francisco earthquake, nine 11 Titanic. I mean, there, there are different kinds of disasters that serve different, um, rhetorical, uh, and and uh, what cognitive functions for us? Mount St. Helens being being different than nine eleven, for instance. Yeah, you know that's a big separator right there. Is there is it an act of God or is there someone to be mad at who is not God? Because you don't want to be mad at God. Well, it depends. He'll, he'll if smite you, you if you think nine eleven. What uh, if the people involved were just instruments of God? That's what they thought. Well, uh, but you know, there's a whole. I teach both sides of the country. There's there's so many sides of of a of nine eleven you have to teach. I mean, I'm sure there's still a third of America who thinks you, there's no plane at the Pentagon, and the, as it's the as the pictures clearly reveal. I've told you, haven't I, that I at one point back when I still enjoyed being on Twitter, I made some mocking reference to a conspiracy theory that the airplanes were holograms, and uh, got a bunch of pushback from people. You know, if you look at it. If you look at it, you can see the glitch in the matrix. Oh, they were they were actually agreeing with you that they were holograms. Well, <clears throat> yes, they. I was not actually saying they were holograms. I understand, but, but, but they believed that there was truth to the holographic hologramic the- theory of nine eleven. If we if we can hologram a Tupac Shakur, exactly. Well, how couldn't we in broad daylight make two? Here's the thing: if you shot a hologram Tupac Shakur, if you took him from uh, Coachella or wherever he hangs out, and mm-hmm. you shot him at the Pentagon. Hmm. He would do no damage. His photons would would pass. Oh, you're saying neatly through the wall. Actually, use him as the projectile. I thought you meant like do a drive by on a holographic Tupac, but at the Pentagon. Well, you'd again, you'd miss him because he's a hologram. Oh, I see what you're the saying. The bullets would pass right through him. Yeah. Oh, I thought you. If Star I Wars has taught us anything, he would be the missile that you would shoot <laughs> no, at the that, Pentagon. That is what I was saying, and I pointed out that the hol- just like the holographic planes, yes, the Pentagon would be unscathed. In both these scenarios. In both instances. It doesn't matter if the hologram looks like Tupac, Princess Leia, or an American Airlines No, 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 wait. Jet. If you were shooting at a holographic Tupac in front of the Pentagon, you'd be using real bullets. They would pass through the hologram and the, the Pentagon would be damaged. That's true. That's the, that's the nightmare scenario. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, So there does seem to be something different in how we think about disasters that are, you know, we noticed this during COVID where a 9-11's worth of people were dying every day and many people still couldn't be bothered to 
wear a mask to the grocery store, you know, because whereas when the real 9-11 happened, they had nightmares for a month. They put up yard signs. They said they thought of new racial slurs to say about uh, Middle Eastern people. I like that you have converted 9-11 into a system of measurement. It's another, it's another. uh, How many 9-11s? It's another proof that Americans will use anything other than the metric system. (laughs) No, that was four 9-11s. Well, now you're implying that when you count the number of uh, casualties of something, that metric would be different than imperial. Oh. America lost 2,900 people on 9-11. And in Canada, that would have been, that would have been 3,300. Well, no, but you would have to, how many, how many Portuguese earthquakes is it? Right? It's like. Right. Uh, oh. and, and But then there's the whole time diminishing it, you know, like uh, how many people did we say die in Portugal? You know, somewhere between 15 and 50,000 people. But because they're all 18th century people. Is that like a metric imperial conversion issue? <laughs> that's right. Um, it's like not knowing how tall Napoleon was. The funny thing is because they're so long ago, there actually is a diminishment where like most of us would probably le- be less broken up about that than about. Uh, you know, a, a car crash on our street where three people died, right? Or a shooting in our country where twenty people died, or you know, and if they're celebrities, then the scale is thrown off altogether. But what are fifty thousand sixteenth-century Portuguese in American dollars? I know that's the problem because You'd... there were fewer people then. Oh, they should be worth more. Yeah, that's right. It's a bigger scale disaster. Portugal had so many fewer spares exactly than we do today 50,000 people then is the equivalent of 15 million people now this is when you get into the actuarial math that blew everybody's mind when they read or saw fight club and they first realized that insurance companies were actually putting dollar amounts on every car or airline or whatever casualty you know every every person who licked lead paint well when you think of how much it's going to cost to replace that like is are each of those kids really worth 7.2 million you know it's it's the kind of awful question that we fool ourselves into thinking that someone should be asking. That's why we here at, at Omnibus talk about pre-Fight Club and post-Fight Club realities. It's a real watershed for those of us who, who used to be able to buy things from mail-order catalogs with guilt-free. <laughs> and now we realize that's not compatible with Marxism at all, to shop for duvets no. over the phone. How do you even know what a duvet is, Ken? <laughs> I'm not sure I did before Fight Club. That's the big difference for me. I did not know the word duvet. You went into it not knowing. Before Chuck Palahniuk taught me. Uh, Through context clues. Uh, you mentioned Mount St. Helens, yes. uh, I think. And that's that's an example of something that really did touch a lot of lives here, but maybe regionally only. Like if you're from Lisbon or Florida or Tokyo, you don't have a lot of generational trauma from a, a Washington State volcano, uh, what, 40 where are we, 30, 20, 42 years ago? I was just in Anchorage going through my uncle's papers uh, after his funeral. I went over to my cousin's house, and we sat and started going through the 10,000 boxes of my uncle's papers. And my sister had long told this story that she was in my uncle's office at one time, and there was this enormous um, like color insert into the Anchorage Times in 1964, with pictures of the damage from the 64 earthquake in Alaska. That's the 9.01 or whatever? Yeah. The... And she she had said to me many times, if you're ever going through Uncle Jack's papers, try and find this, this flyer, right? mm-hmm. this section. And I was going through the papers, and I found a, a copy of a Collier's magazine from 1964 that had Jill St. John on the cover. <laughs> and I was like, why would he have kept this? I think and, we all know why. You <laughs> and, you know, and so I immediately went to the Jill St. John photos. I was like, yeah, hello. Co- Collier's baby. Hello, ladies. But then I turned the page and there was like a five-page color section showing the devastation of the 1964 Alaska earthquake, which is an event that's absolutely, you know, like seared into everyone's mind up there. That was, We all know every inch of it, you know, like a major, major event. And it was in the back third of this issue of Collier's, and I f- went back to the front page, and it was like fourth down, like Jill St. John on the cover, and then like new lasagna recipes, and the Ford, you know, the yeah. Falcon for 64, and then devastation in Alaska. And I was I was so shocked that it meant so little 
outside Out- in, in the lower 48. It's the, the same way that the rest of us would think about an earthquake in Pakistan or a, a flood in Bangladesh. Even in Seattle, I think it was a bigger deal. But yeah, this national magazine was like, oh, here's a this will be a fun little. And it's a, that's a good measure of how me, uh, memories are pretty short. What To whatever degree there was a cultural impact of this monumental, unprecedented American earthquake, it's probably like zero uh, cultural uh, uh, legacy today outside of the state of Alaska. And it's interesting when natural disasters transcend that. You know, the San Francisco earthquake and fire had a, had a few good a few good decades, I think. Yeah. Um, it helps when they write a song about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald yes, or whatever. The Titanic is an example of, you know, a series of movies and, and, uh, and books propping it up for, you know, almost a century. Is it because it's a metaphor for hubris? That's it. That's Or is it because it's like rich and poor or it's, what? It's full of ca- little character beats, which right. is not true of, of every disaster, or at least maybe they don't come down to us. The orchestra playing on the deck. The exactly the those who gave the warning, and then the hubris of it's basically, I the ship that never sunk sunk immediately. Can, <laughs> like you can't get over that. It's a pretty good part of the story. Yeah, and I guess it's right at that transition, that technology transition, or at least close enough to yeah. it, where it's like, hey, it's the new world. Like, and we're all wearing gold braid still, and. And the British are still in India. And people on two continents are following it in real time. You know, there's that technology aspect right. of it, too. Right. You know, oh, how many survivors? Let's, we've got to get tomorrow's paper and find <laughs> out. <laughs> uh, which, the funny thing is, though, the Lisbon earthquake had that kind of, uh, had that kind of an echo effect, even though, you know, most of Europe would have found out months later uh, when a horse arrived or something. Uh, Without a rider. Yeah. <laughs> how did you get here, Bessie? <laughs> what? Lisbon's in a well? Uh, the, for many years, the American natural disaster that functioned in this way in popular thought, uh, was the Johnstown flood of 1891 to the degree that, you know, we still think of that today as, oh yeah, that's the, that's the Ur flood, even though we couldn't point to Johnstown. Many people probably don't even know what state Johnstown is in. Um, I think to this day, maybe only the Galveston hurricane of 1900, you know, of, uh, I think that's right, a decade or so later, uh, caused greater loss of life. So to this day, this is still kind of a a near record-setting thing. But we don't, today we don't know the stories or the mythology, but... um, I always think of the Johnstown flood as being one of those sort of proto-Marxist events where it's like the big bosses versus, it's like all those uh, mine fires in West Virginia, right? Where the real story is just that the uncaring Daddy Warbucks's, or uh, I'm sorry, Daddy Warbucks was a nice guy. What am I talking no, about? No, he's he was, mean at first. I, I, it takes a young orphan in a red dress to touch his heart. He's a war profiteer. But yeah, but, it's in his name, Warbucks. You, you know, like a like a like a uh, a an empire builder. A, sure, a bad bad capitalists. All uh, the New Deal haters. But it also feels like, at least to me, coming from the West Coast. All that kind of Appalachia, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, yappa dappa doop. Like everybody, there's there's always somebody in a flat cap falling into a hole. Uh, I see classism. Yeah, it just feels like all oh, those all oh, those Scots Irish. You know, they get lost in the woods. Like who knows? I did not know the uh, I guess the Marxist reading of the Johnstown Flood until you know I was just looking into this today. I had not read the David McCullough book that I think everybody read. And in fact, my somehow my dad emailed me last night to be like, "Hey, mom says you're doing Johnstown Flood on the show." I, I must have mentioned something and didn't. Must have my, forgotten not to talk to your parents. My mom was over, <laughs> and uh, and he said, uh, "Well, you got to read the David McCullough book," which I proceeded to not do because it's 400 pages yeah. and I had an hour. But I did read. I did watch the documentary they show at the Johnstown Flood National Memorial, which is narrated by McCullough and uh, is a pretty good precis, I think. But um, and I haven't read that book, but I just think of it that way because I think every <clears throat> every natural disaster in the 19th century has some— Well, most natural disasters don't have that easy Marxist overlay because, famously, natural disasters, as Jesus said, rain on the rich and poor alike. Ah, yes. This is the exceptional case. I guess now that I think about it, it's not the only one. In our lifetimes, we have Katrina, uh, right. where— 
where it's God, but Is exacerbated. It? It's God and the uh, Army Corps of Engineers and race and class all working together to, to you know, damage certain parts of, of New Orleans and leave others unscathed. Saxophone, um, reckless folly. And, and uh, so Kanye West, I guess, is the face of our generation learning that natural disasters may be compatible with Marxism uh-huh. um, when he, when he uh, scared Mike Myers. But uh, my dad emailed me to say, um, you know, well into my lifetime, the Johnstown flood basically still was still functioning as kind of a, a source of lore, you know, and, and then, you know, over time, the, the horror of the event gets blunted by the romance of the ballads and the yeah. stories of the human spirit and the songs and the poems that get written. Um, in his case, he was like, I had this joke book as a kid in the 50s that had a Johnstown flood joke in it. And it was it was really about the the jokes about the impact of the uh, the cultural impact of the story. It's also um, not funny in any way, so I don't I want you to be primed for this. But at the time, you it required that people in the fifties all knew understand not just that there was a flood in Pennsylvania, but that there was a uh, a legacy of decades of storytelling and and survivors and possibly exaggeration about the okay, the hit, legends. Hit me with the joke. Okay, it's good. You're gonna. I'm right. You're going to lose it. You know, don't, don't, don't tell me whether I find it funny or not. Uh, a man uh, spends his whole life dining out on stories of the Jones, Jonestown flood. It's also hard not to say Jonestown in our, in our generation, which is going to be a problem. I wonder if that's what blunted the cultural impact of Jonestown. We're like, another? We got, a, we got a better disaster of the same phonemes. I mean, it, you could, it's a stretch, but it, you could describe Jonestown as a kind of flood. Of Kool Aid, we need to we need to start flavor aid. We need to start a band called the Elton Johnstown Massacre or something, Ooh. just to get just to get the Johnstown flood back in the conversation. I just like that you're suggesting you and I form a band. Sure, I think we could do it. But I don't know why I'm suggesting it be a Brian Jonestown Massacre uh, tribute or cover band. But why not? You kind of look like you could be a member of Brian <laughs> Jonestown Massacre. <laughs> uh, so a, a man has been uh, boring people his whole life. An old man finally. Uh, dies after having bored everyone his whole life, generations to come with stories of the Johnstown flood in 1889 or whatever. And he gets to heaven and St. Peter says, Hey, good news. Uh, Everybody in heaven gets one wish. You'd think it would be more, I guess. I don't want to interrogate this part of the joke, but why is it only one wish, St. Peter? One wish as like a, a, like an arrival gift. Like you come in, there's a basket of swag bag stuff. Yeah. (laughs) But then once you're there, it's not like, is, oh, you had your one wish. Yeah, isn't it implicit in, in every conception of heaven that all wishes are granted? I mean, all I mean, would it be, saintly wishes. We don't want to get up there and be like, I want all the horrors. That's true. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought you were going to say, you know, rain down fireballs on my enemy still in life. Right. But I guess no, neither, if, you had, if your impulse was to ask for either of those things. You wouldn't be there. Yeah, why would you be in heaven? So, yeah, I guess that's the idea. If you're there, you will only... You only need one more wish. I would like a delicious piece of fruit, each bite of which sates my soul. Oh, I thought you were going to say, I wish uh, peace and goodwill for all the inhabitants of Earth. Well, we know that doesn't work because... Or someone in heaven would have wished it by now. Mm. (laughs) They're busy with racquetball. They're playing pickleball up there? They just forget to do it. Uh, Anyway, he gets his one welcome wish uh, in the lobby. And he says, you know what? Uh, people have been complaining about my yammer on about the Johnstown flood for years. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to be able to tell my story to an appreciative crowd. And so heaven gathers so that Barnaby can tell his story of the Johnstown flood. And just as he's about to take the stage, St. Peter leans over to him and says, hey, just so you know, Noah is in the crowd. Oh, you were waiting for the rest of the joke. Oh. There was a discernible pause as you waited for the rest of the joke. Yeah, but now it's like, oh, Noah's there. Like he's got a flood story that tops this one. Zing. But anyway, this isn't a children's joke book in the late fifties, according to my dad. A children's so. bo- joke book, or was it in a Toastmasters International <laughs> joke book? At the time, there was no. I mean, I guess there <laughs> no were difference. dirty jokes existed, but you know, like all jokes were the kind of lame riddles that kids would memorize. It's just that for some reason, salesmen were learning them. Yeah, to ply housewives with well you start a rotary club meeting you get up and you're like have you heard the one about the <laughs> you're, you shake your papers together and then you say but seriously but seriously um so this is kind of a you, you know you've already mentioned that this is a a natural disaster with some unnatural causes and knock-on effects that reveal a lot about america 
in the late 19th century. Um, just to set the geographic stage for our future listeners who, like me, could not have pointed to Johnstown on a map. Um, Johnstown, Pennsylvania is in kind of southwestern, south-central Pennsylvania. It's a little bit east of Pittsburgh, which, if you can picture it, is kind of close to the New York border. Uh, down from the Alleghenies flows... Were you saying that Pittsburgh is close to the New York border? Yes. Do you disagree with this assessment of Pittsburgh? No, 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 no. It's um, if 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 you want to say that it's close to the New York border, I'm. I mean, I'm not saying I, you, I'm I not saying to... I'm not saying you could sneak across to take advantage of parking laws. Oh wait, sorry. I would describe I, it as, as I have the quite, map, quite I, a distance from the no, New York border. But... I, I have the map totally wrong. Oh. It's it's uh, it's the Ohio border. It's close to the Ohio border. There That's we right. go. That's what we wanted to the say. The three rivers. The three rivers. One of which is the Allegheny. And one of whose tributaries is something long that starts with a K, and one of its tributaries is the Little Kanama River, which flows down from the Alleghenies, and it meets another tributary of the eventually of the Allegheny called Stony Creek. And this confluence became the site of a of a boomtown in the 1880s, a coal and steel boomtown, still there, which we call Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Now, at the time, if you want to paint a picture. I do. This is a kind of a smoky, glowing uh, uh, a hotbed of industry. You know, it's it's grown up so fast that houses are just packed in chock-a-block uh, to the degree that you can't imagine it being more crowded or bustling or packed than it is. Um, the inhabitants are largely, you know, there's somewhere north of 20,000 people, most of which are German and Welsh immigrants. Big boom town. You love it when a story has the Welsh in it. Well, we've talked about the Welsh in Pennsylvania before. They uh, they had their coal back where they came from. Right. And they sought it out they, yes. as if as if through a extrasensory perception. They feel it in their bones. Follow your nose, Where's Welshman. the coal? Uh, they are all working, most of them at the Cambria Iron Company. Now that I think about it, doesn't Cambria mean Wales? It does. So they're working at a Welsh-themed amusement park. Uh, The Cambria Iron Company uh, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which turns out all manner of iron goods, largely rails for railroads. That's what you wanted made out of iron back then. Because you need to make the iron to build the railroads to take the iron to the railroad making place to build railroads to bring got, the iron you gotta have railroads to get the coal which you then bring right. back to it's an to smelt the iron it's a it's a coal iron railroads uh cycle and if no part of it had started we would not need any of it but sadly right it did and now we do we could still be in the bronze age you and i lots of barbed wire and machine parts being made there uh essentially being made like 24 7 i mean sometimes sunday's off but uh in times of uh Ramped up industrial production. The fires are lit all week. The men are working in 10-hour shifts. And well, their fathers fought the Second World War. That's right. How far is Johnstown from Allentown? on the Jersey Shore. In spiritual distance. In spiritual distance. In spiritual very distance. Close. Very close. The only question I have, which is closest to the New York border? The, the only thing I care about when it comes to Western Pennsylvania, apparently. <laughs> or Ohio, as some pronounce it. The, uh, you know, it's, it's tempting to imagine this as a tough life. And I'm sure it was, these men are working 10 hour shifts, but they're, they're hardy, uh, immigrant stock. Yeah. And I guess by, at least in the standards of the time, the Cambria iron company was a pretty good boss. Um, the men, it was, you know, a fairly progressive organization, given whatever that means in 1889. Today, we would probably say paternalistic instead of progressive, but but whatever. The men are working, the men are getting a buck fifty a day. Tomato, tomato. Which is about all you could hope for at the time. Um, and it's a it's kind of a genteel environment. The, the detail in the David McCullough documentary is that when they went to the pay window every Saturday to pick up their checks... They all put on their finest suit. Oh, nice. It is it's just nice, like right? wearing your white gloves when you flew on an airplane. They, uh, the town is modernizing rapidly because Cambria Iron is a massively profitable concern. There are 70 telephones, 27 churches, a handful of newspapers. There's a new hospital. There's a new police department. Um, this is not some depressing Appalachian company town of the kind 
uh, you might imagine in coal country, uh, not too far off, it's a, it's a thriving, prosperous community of tomorrow, it, it, given whatever that means in 1889. You know, it's not far. It's pretty close. To the New York border? No. It's <sighs> a long way from the New York border. Damn it. Uh, but it is not far from Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, Falling Water. Ah, interesting. So that's just right uh, right down the road. That seems it. like Frank Lloyd Wright is rubbing a little salt in the wounds mm. to put a, a house called Falling Water so near to the Johnstown Pennsylvania, really famous for only one thing, and it's a, a ton of. Well, I guess rising water would be the opposite of falling water. So there's a corner there uh, where the West Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania borders all form a little T mm-hmm. shape, and it's sort of a. It's close to Morgantown, and I feel like that maybe is the center of some kind of deep, profound. Hole in the earth. Is it your spiritual home as a Welshman? No, I don't think so. I think it is a place I've, I've, it's by the Cumberland Gap. I've spent a lot of time. One of our finest gaps. I've spent a lot of time trying to just stay, stay out of there. I feel like it's the gap. That's, I don't oh, want to fall into the gap. It's a, it's a, it's a yawning void. It's a, yes, it is. And I, it, and I'm afraid of it. I have to say, whenever we talk about this area, I'm just, I, I, I get afraid. Uh, should we interrogate this enough to find out what problematic, uh, class fears lie at the core of your, your fear of, uh, West Virginia or should no, we move it's on? The, it's the Welsh thing, but no, you know what? We should do the Cumberland Gap as a future show because all of our listeners in New Zealand and Germany would love to hear another story about an, an American geographical feature. I considered that today. This show was requested by a listener named Sean and you and I have talked about you know, the Johnstown Flood is such a classic piece of kind of a memory hold Americana. I mean, not, not fully memory hold, but, yeah, you know, something that we, you know, was once, you know, the the talk of the land. Right. But there have and now to, seems like a forgotten footnote. There have to have been 50 murderous floods in Australia, at least on the scale of yes. this. The, the whole population of Australia has been wiped clean four or five times and replenished just in the time that it's going to take us to talk about the Johnstown flood. But what makes this such a great story, as you've alluded to, and what was kind of new to me is the fact that, uh, well, let's, let's introduce the, uh, let's do this as a Marxist parable. Oh no. (laughs) 14 miles upstream from, from, uh, from where labor was prospering shoveling coal into things and not owning the means of production, but doing all right by yeah, their standards. dressing up to get their pay. Is the re- the people who are actually prospering. Oh, dear. 14 miles upstream is the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. Uh, a uh, Basically an obscene community of the uber-wealthy perched on a reservoir, creative, a created lake in the hills above Johnstown. Are they the rich of Pittsburgh or are they the, That's they exactly there. And when at the time when you say the rich of Pittsburgh, that's equivalent to saying it's it's Bill Gates and and Elon Musk. It's Andrew Carnegie. Yes, it's it's Andrew Carnegie. It's literally there are houses that belong to Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Mellon, Henry Clay Frick, the Phipps family. Um, you know, if you go to Pittsburgh today, there are still 150 things named after each of these people. Right. And at the time, the plibs, the blimps, yeah, the, the plibs and the blimps, blimps, and then and then Lorps. when the when young Rosemary Plib <laughs> married Silas Blimp, uh, of course they were unified into the the Plib Blimps. <laughs> they, uh, I went to the Plib Blimp Library a lot when I was in college. The state of Pennsylvania had dammed the Little Connemaw uh, to form a lake in the mountains. Uh, and then had promptly kind of forgotten about it and stopped maintaining it. Can you guess why Pennsylvania would build a series of dams in the 1860s and then lose interest? This is kind of a previous, a previous area of omnibusian examination. They were building dams to create little reservoirs um, and then forgot about them because they were trying to increase the beaver pelt trade <laughs> and then beaver hats fell out of fashion in uh 19th century or 18th century france you're very close in the early 19th century pennsylvania was going to build a vast canal system oh, yeah. because in a pre-railroad age canals were the future and as we've discussed before this lasted 
roughly six months. <laughs> yeah, right. Those railroads were coming up. And then all the canals were useless. So I think this was a case where Pennsylvania suddenly realized they were not going to pour a ton of money from the state coffers into a vast and efficient canal system. But they did try to to do a kind of P- Panama version of of sort of tiered... I, I'm just realizing you're going to ask wh- where this would go. And now that I look at it on a map, I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to make some of these rivers out of the Allegheny navigable, I assume, for timber and barges and, uh, and all the rest. Coal from mines... Uh, and, uh, but then the railroad replaced all of this. And now, so there's just a rapidly aging dam with no public money to do anything for it. This does not concern the fibs and the blimps mm-hmm. and the fricks and the fracks. Right. They have all built these enormous Victorian mansions overlooking this gorgeous lake. At the time, they wouldn't even have said Victorian mansions. They would just say, Mansions. These are mansions. Yeah. Right. It's only in hindsight we're like, wait a second. They didn't know what to call them at the time. <laughs> These are. I like your mansion. What do you call that? It's just a normal. <sighs> it's just a normal regular mansion. Just, a just, mansion. just like yours, Bob. Oh yeah, normal regular mansion. It looks good. But this was really. It's hard to overstate how uber wealthy this weekend getaway is of these hidden summer homes, intentionally all tucked away from the normal people up there. Mm-hmm. Um, they called them cottages, but they're enormous. There's mm-hmm. a 37 room clubhouse down on the lake for all of their. Summer lawn parties. There are two steam yachts plying huh. the waters of this reservoir. So big, big enough for two steam yachts. Yeah, it, it must be a, a pretty sizable. It's not a. Don't picture a city reservoir here. No. Uh, the pictures make it look just like a, a gorgeous mountain lake of the kind that must have appealed to their sense of uh, European alpine respectability. You know, out of reach for us here in the Northeast, except in a few select points. It kind of has a Salton Sea vibe. Where right. it's like, hey, we we made this crazy lake. Let, let's uh, let's let's go live there. And at this point, it's been a few. It's been twenty, thirty years that it's. So it's it's kind of just part of the landscape now. It's hey, there's a cool mountain lake now. Nobody remembers that it's a drowned valley. And isn't that incredible that we if if you and I think about our thirty years ago, that's a that's a long time ago. That this it's could really have been not. up there for thirty years, and <laughs> and and it's and and it's already yeah right completely. It feels like it's been there forever. If this happened to us, it would be a grunge era um, piece of infrastructure <laughs> failing, and that happens all the time. It does that, that probably happened in six American bridges today? It does right. Well, the Crocodile Cafe, where did it ever go? Well, you know where it is now. It's in a steakhouse. Yeah. It's, it's it's in El Gaucho or whatever. <laughs> uh, the uh, so it's the kind of place where the scion of one of these families will take a pretty young thing from another family out on a canoe with mm-hmm. a parasol, and there will be some kind of canoodling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the rich come up here on weekends and particularly in the summer. The problem is that I don't think I have to treat this as a spoiler. None of this, John, is remotely safe. Oh, um, <clears throat> are you t- are you about to tell me that this is an earthen dam and not a concrete dam? It's a massive earthworks. Oh dear. Um, you know that's been on my list of omnibus topics for a long time. Earthen, earthen dams. Well, I hope you do some some successful ones because they're all around. Because people are going to get the wrong idea after hearing about this one. Oh, oh, you're saying not uh, hashtag not all earthen dams. Think about all the good earthen dams yeah, out there just doing good work. Guess what? There aren't that many of those. There are a lot of them. They're leaking. It turns out concrete is holds <laughs> water better than dirt. Yeah, I'm afraid so. If you've ever Over lived long term, if you've ever lived in a concrete apartment versus an apartment building made of dirt. You might understand this. Uh, and the Ale and Quail Club, or whatever these yo-yos are calling themselves, are not helping. They have lowered the abutment over the years um, to kind of make it even with the earthwork so that a carriage can get across. Oh. Um, oh. So they're busy lowering. They knocked the dam down. They're Yeah, they're lowering the dam. To build a little road. Because what can go wrong? Sure. Um, the spillways, you know, the uh, overflow yeah. passageways from a dam, whatever you call them, uh, are now, are, are now covered in street. I'm just defining spillway for those who don't have your knowledge of damn engineering. <laughs> damn it. Uh, they have been blocked with screens because the lake, of course, has been stocked with game fish. These guys come up here to hunt. It's literally called the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. So they've blocked the spillways with screens, which I'm sure seemed harmless to whatever employee was doing it. And as it turned out, uh, ended up contributing to the deaths of thousands of people. <laughs> Uh, the discharge pipes, which could have been used to drain 
or lower the lake to, to work on some of this stuff actually uh, were sold for scrap after a previous flood. <laughs> hey, the lake, uh, the, you know, the, the dam flooded. Let's, now all the pipes are rusty. Let's just sell them off. This is starting to sound like the Russian arms industry. I, it's occurring to me now that they're, luckily for our libertarian listeners, who I assume have survived in the future on some space colony where we put them. For sure. Uh, I think they represent between 15 and 50% of all futurelings. We are delighted. They'll be delighted to hear that it was a, a massive municipal failure, as right. well as a case of the uncaring rich. Right. You and I hear this story and we're like, yeah, the uncaring rich. But these people are like, hey, maybe hey. the state of Pennsylvania. No, wait. Just another example of how uh, local government fails and this should have been private enterprise the whole time. Because <laughs> clearly that would have worked better. Um and so this is nobody notices the increasing structural problems with this dam and its surroundings until late May of 1889, when a massive rain system starts to move in from the prairie states, mm, Kansas, it's and, always their fault, Kansas and wherever. Uh, 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 Kansas is a long way off, but it is. But it, the system does begin in 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 uh, maybe not Kansas, maybe let's say Indiana, Illinois. Iowa. All those places can throw up some weather, let me tell you. Starts to move east across what I call the New York border and what others may call the Ohio border. Uh-huh. Uh, and... Into the great state of Pennsylvania, or um, uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That's right. And on May 28th, you, you saved yourself a bunch of letters there. <laughs> I sure did. On May 28th, 1889, it starts to rain heavily in the Alleghenies. Um, Lake Connemaw... Uh, it has eight inches of rain. This is obviously yeah. shaping up to be kind of a once in a generation um, soaking. Ye God, it's a eight real downpour. Inches of rain. The rivers have already are, the rivers um, are rising. This can't be right. No, this is right. The rivers are rising at one point at the rate of a foot an hour. So the whole area is just getting soaked. John, the streets of Johnstown, fourteen miles downstream, are already uh, soggy, and then. A bunch of standing water. You know, Johnstown's already underwater. For our uh, international futurelings, how many smooths is that? That's twenty centimeters uh, per, per decaminute. Per, per twenty centimeters per decaminute, and let's see how many smooths it is. It is point eleven nine smooths. If you so, if you still use smooths in the future for uh, rainfall, which I'm sure they do. Um, so this is serious. You know, when there's a foot of water in the streets of your town, um, it's trouble. Trains have started to be held on the tracks. Uh, telephone wires are down. Um, it's a big, big, big storm. But it seems like the kind of thing that will pass until the morning of May 31st. The, um, this is during the week, so most of, the, most of America's rich and famous luminaries are not up at South Fork. But the superintendent is. And I, he, I just want to, I'm sorry to interrupt, no, but I fine. just want to point this out. This is just the most suspenseful moment in the tale. Go ahead. <laughs> I just want to point out. That in 2003, the greatest rainstorm in Seattle history, uh -huh. a famously rainy town, deposited five inches of rain, or 127 millimeters, or 12 and a half centimeters. This is a mega event. This is not a drizzly day that leads, that's the last straw that breaks the camel's back. It's a big, big rain. Uh, the superintendent of the fishing and hunting club wakes up to see that the lake has risen two feet Blech. and is continuing to rise an inch every 10 minutes. This is very alarming because the lake is not that much lower than the dam at this point. The owners are not around, but he does. The owners of the houses? The owners, the owners? The owners of the houses, yeah. yeah. But he does a quick check, you know, with whatever skeleton crew is up there. And he sees what's going on. Debris has started to block all the spillways because that's why the lake's rising. You know, right. debris has hit the trout screens, and, <laughs> right? Which is great news for Henry Clay Frick's uh, fishing expedition the following weekend. But right, uh, terrible news if you're hoping to not bust the dam. Probably good news if you were a trout who didn't want to go <laughs> for a long drop. If you're at a first, if you're a lazy trout that it, just wants to, whose dream is to be eaten by. A Scots-American uh, millionaire. So, and the water has is come over the breast of the dam. I didn't know dams had breasts. Mm, sure. But, you know, when, when engineers are men, this mm -hmm. is the kind of thing that happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and the earthworks are visibly beginning to crumble because the water has now crested over the breast of the dam. 
uh, at 11.30 a.m., a writer is dispatched to head down to Johnstown to say, we're not sure if the dam is going to hold. Because it's clear what would happen if that much water washed through the valley. There was not a system of bells or watchtowers or bonfires. Rohan style. Uh-huh. Rohan will not answer, no. There, unfortunately, there, you know, there is the electrical equivalent of that. Oh. There's a telegraph. But again, branches and winds have knocked and rains have knocked down enough of the lines to the degree that the, tele, the telegraph operator can only send the message four miles downriver. So a series of messengers and horses is trying to get word to civilization. And in fact, one thing I read is that after the fact that a story, story circulated for years that a, a, a brave Paul Revere type did get to Johnstown, you know, it's the kind of American great man story we love. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and people just he got lost at an exit on the turnpike and couldn't figure out like <laughs> it literally was a turnpike. That's funny. The road to the road to Johnstown was called the turnpike at the time. Um, but as the story goes, he got there and was not able to uh, awake any public interest in the apparent catastrophe. He becomes a Cassandra figure who, um, in his brave attempts to warn the people of Johnstown actually is unable to seek higher ground in time and is killed. Oh, no! Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't shed not a tear for this imaginary Paul River. This never happened. Okay. This, oh. was, a, this oh. was an invention of the magazines. And the people of Johnstown hated this story because it made them seem like dopes. Right. Uh, and, you know, they you know they pointed out that at the time, spoilers, at the time the dam breaks, the water moved faster than a horse. This, you know, there was no, it was a 14 mile, it was nine miles as the crow flies, longer than that by horse. Um, there was just no way that word was going to get there. Also, it was mid-afternoon, right? So that's the one time of day when you can count on most Welsh people to be as sober as they're going to be at any time. <laughs> this is when you. This is when the Welsh are hoping the flood will happen. Yeah, right. They're not. They're not hungover from the night before. They're in church at three o'clock in the afternoon. They're all putting on their suits to go pick up their paychecks. At three ten p.m. on May thirty first, eighteen eighty nine, the South Fork Dam breaks. Now, if you're I mean, the you don't even have to make this a Marxist parable. It's it's too easy. the The wealthy houses are up on the hillside, so they can literally and figuratively look down upon not just the beautiful landscape, but all the scurrying common people that make their lifestyle possible. Right. Um, their houses. The only pity is that there are no rich people there because they're all. <laughs> but the houses are fine. Their houses are above the dam and above the lake. And therefore, not a problem. They're on the, on all the hillside. Everybody, you know, who, who, whatever few people are there, watch aghast as basically the ending of Superman the Motion Picture happens. Spell it out. Uh, above the dam, good. Above the dam, good. Below uh, the dam, not so good. CF, the Spike Lee movie, When the Levees Broke. Like, it's, you know, the more things change in America, the more they stay the same. Now, there's a stone railroad viaduct about a mile down. And the force of the water hits that viaduct and just immediately smashes it. Oh, wow. So now you've got a wall of water that's not just full of trees and very confused trout and whatever other debris was, you know, and the remains of the dam, obviously. But now big, giant chunks of quarried stone from the ex-railroad bridge. Um, you never think about, in a in an event like this, that the... Um, <clears throat> that the things that are destroyed upriver then become agents of destruction further downriver. You know, there's a there's a little metaphor there about the cycles of bullying and abuse. Oh, you know, yeah. it's those of us that were damaged earlier that that take it out on others. Right, it really makes you think. It does. So, so a bully could be described as just a destroyed uh, railroad viaduct. He's, a, he's just a viaduct that uh, that didn't get healed with the mortar of. Uh, of cognitive behavioral therapy. I guess you could say that the people on the lower floor floors of the World Trade Center weren't destroyed by the plane. They were destroyed by the upper floors of the World Trade Center. I guess that's true. It, and I mean, that implies that, I mean, it's true that the investment banks were up there and presumably the maintenance people were lower down. Yeah, all the lower floors of the World Trade Center were just sweatshops and People making can you know, putting salmon in cans. I'm pr- I've been there. I was there, and I'm pretty sure it was a Krispy Kreme. Actually, there was a Krispy Kreme in the uh, in the lobby, uh, the at street level. So, the only re- one of the few people in the valley are the trains that have been held on the tracks, and the, you know, I think the train tracks follow the river pretty closely, and they can see what's going to happen. And do they put on the gas? They put on the gas backwards. Hmm. They start heading away from 
the catastrophe, but with their whistles on at full bore to try to warn people, no, 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 because, you know, they're, the tracks are going to get washed out ahead. Uh, at 4.07 p.m., a wave of water 40 feet tall, like, you know, how long did a, a few it took an tall. hour to get there? When did the dam break? 310, apparently. It took 50 minutes for the wall of water to actually reach the town. Well, it's going, it's, it's traveling something like 15 miles. So, so the untold story is all the sheep herders and people out for a walk and people playing frisbee with their dog in the 15 miles between the dam and the town. You have to think there was somebody. There yeah. was somebody out hunting with their hound, but probably not probably not that many people in it's a pretty wild country in 1889, right? But, you know, think of that's in the, when they make the movie, there's always going to be a the, scene, right? The first guy. Yeah, where somebody's out the, the Harry Truman of Mount St. Helens, <laughs> exactly. but, but his Allegheny equivalent. It's a coming. Uh the wall of water is 40 feet tall and half a mile wide. This is probably the thing that slows it down is that it's, it's broadening to fill the basin. Um, and it arrives at Johnstown with what has been calculated to be the force of Niagara Falls. It is snapping trees like, like toothpicks as it goes. Um, so it's one Niagara Fall. What is that in smoots? It's, yeah, it's one NF uh, or, or, or uh, you know, 100 centa NFs. Um, it's now carrying with it, you know, locomotives that have been swept uh, off of tracks and rail yards. Um, and it's carrying animals. Uh, what an incredible indignity to get killed by, by a cow, by a cat, by a, but yeah, like by a, a drowning by cow. a burrow that is getting swept along in a, in a flood. And in, you know, and in kind of a grisly, uh, turn of events, it's also, you know, now 600 people are being swept from, you know, the upstream parts of the town are being swept down. Within 10 minutes, the city has basically just been leveled. Houses are just shredded like eggshells. Um, lots of eyewitness accounts, um, many, uh, you know, many colorful, you know, babies being tossed from roof to roof or, you know, makeshift rafts, whatever, whatever bit of lumber you can cling to. Um, but also just horrifying ones of people seeking... Highest ground, you know, people with attics headed upstairs only to watch, you know, this is 40 feet of water, only to watch, you know, they're standing on joists as, as the waters rise. So you get awful stories of, um, you know, a woman who's up there with a baby and six kids and, you know, they drown one at a time as the waters rise and only she survives. Like a boop, 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 boop. You mean they drown, the the, the smallest not, child drowns first? I would say, well, yes, but not in order of height. Is that what you're implying? Yeah. No, well, because... Isn't that what you were implying? They're the weaker swimmers and the, oh. have, the, have the weaker grip on the joists and, and whatnot. Oh, I thought they were just standing there passively on a joist as the... Like the like the Von Trapp children on the stairs? <laughs> exactly. I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. Um, and then... Uh, you know, while all this is happening in attics all over town, people wonder, you know, as porches just get shredded from houses, people wonder, will my house collapse? Will my house just get shifted off its foundations and wind up uh, half a mile away? Um, all this massive pile of debris from the whole valley and then much of the town slams into the stone railroad bridge, the Johnstown Bridge, right, that crosses the river at, in town. And that bridge holds, Whoa. but what that means is you have just a giant debris heap with a valley's worth of stuff, and now people slamming into it. Um, a lot of barbed wire from from fencing and from perhaps from the ironworks has got caught up in this, so people are tangled in barbed wire on this massive heap, and it's all soaked in oil, and it almost immediately goes up oh as the water recedes. So now there's just this f inferno of a debris heap. Um, burning at the center of town. And that's where most of the loss of life occurs. You're kidding. 2,200 people ended up dying. The smell of uh, burning flesh travels for, for uh, you know, 100 miles. So there were people that survived the flood only to get tangled in barbed wire and burned a lot. Well, yeah, if you're, you know, a lot of people just got washed away. And unfortunately, that all ended in a massive conflagration at the bridge. Um. Well, actually, I don't know. Like this, this says as many as 500 bodies were driven into the bridge. So, you know, depending on how many 
how many died when the fire started. So many died of, of burning that one in five bodies ended up being unidentified. You know, no, you know, it was unable to to find out who was who. Ninety nine whole families were gone in in that every you know every member of the family died. A hundred widows were left. Two hundred widowers, perhaps because the men were at the plant um, and maybe therefore insulated, or, or just taller. Or just taller again, or could have been standing on the stairs like the older Von Trapps. A mm-hmm. hundred orphans. Um, but yeah, there were people who lost seven or eight kids. Uh, and the town's gone. So then it just becomes a humanitarian disaster. Typhoid mm-hmm. begins to spread almost immediately. So it really is. And, you know, in addition to the typhoid magazine stories of the terrible tragedy spread almost immediately, this kind of thing is irresistible because there are no true crime podcasts back then. And uh, America just cannot get enough of the stories of bravery and woe out of this little steel town. Um, by all accounts, the people of Johnstown are to be commended. Within hours, they have started to organize. They've deputized you know, new leaders and law enforcement. They've built a makeshift hospital. Um, they've begun figuring out how to, you know, what can be rebuilt, where people can stay. Um, America, having you know read these wire reports, starts immediately sending lumber, hundreds of doctors to volunteer. The real hero of the rebuilding turns out to be a uh, a woman who had been a Civil War nurse, and mm. not not just a Civil War nurse, but pretty much the Civil War nurse, Clara Barton. It's Clara Barton was at no less than Clara Barton. She was at the Battle of Bull Run and saw how bad the facilities were, and basically ended up kind of taking over. You know, Union generals put her in charge of the the whole Army hospital effort for the whole Civil War. Um, she's basically the Florence Nightingale of the Civil War in a time when, in general, in our society, women couldn't be counted on to run a church raffle. You know, and yet she's a leader of men uh, in the in the military hospital system. Um, after the war, she finds out that there are just tens of thousands of. Uh, veterans and injured service people separated from their families. And so she starts an organization to reunite uh, families and to track down missing soldiers. Uh, she gets caught up with the women's suffrage movement. She's hanging out with Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony, all the great reformers of her day, but it's a lot. She gets stressed. Her health suffers from uh, all these socials she's dealing with. And her doctor recommends she spend some time in Switzerland. And she gets to Switzerland just in time to observe a newly founded organization called the International Red Cross. Oh, yeah. And she loves this. She thinks, why don't we have a humanitarian organization like this in America? She heads back in the 1870s, talks to President Hayes and says, hey, like, you know, think of all the lives that were saved in the Civil War because of efforts like mine. I want to start a new organization to do that again. And Rutherford B. Hayes says... You silly woman, there will never be another civil war. Um, we don't need this. He turns down her offer to start, to start the, the Red American Cross. Red Cross. And President Hayes is like, uh, pass, wow. hard pass. It's kind of funny to think of just how much of that kind of American Gilded Age glee and glitter was a result of just having survived the civil war and thinking, well, everything's going to be great now. That won't happen again. It's like a World War One kind of a thing. Yeah, we're sort of how we've been for the last 60 years going, Nazism! Right. Good it, thing we took care of those guys. It, it couldn't happen again. So President Hayes is, is this kind of guy. and But luckily, she keeps pestering administration after administration and finally um, is able to and changes tack. She, she eventually ends up telling Chester President Arthur... That, uh, look, even if there's not a civil war, there's going to be humanitarian disasters. There's going to be floods and wildfires and earthquakes and hurricanes in various parts of this great land. And you need this kind of a response, emergency response. And she finally gets some money from the government. She starts the what is now the American Red Cross. And uh, the Johnstown flood in 1889 is really what puts the Red Cross on the map. Because Claire Barton shows up early. She organizes, you know, she's got an infrastructure already. She's got... An organization, she knows how to organize volunteers, she knows how to set up um, triage-type hospitals out of nothing, she knows what supplies you need and how much and where, and she ends up, you know, she gets there almost immediately after the flood and ends up staying for five months um, as Johnstown is rebuilt. Now, so every time you get a, a box of Band-Aids out, 
you have the Johnstown flood to thank for it here in the United States, at least. I mean, I don't want to imply that the Red Cross needed this kind of a stage, and I certainly don't want to start a conspiracy theory where Clara Barton <laughs> sabotages the dam. Although, what a movie that would be, right? I know. Her, she's out there. She's not just persuading the the local. She's not just showing up at at HOA meetings and saying, "Hey, we should lower the abutment." But she's actually there by night, chipping away at the dam. We need a American Red Cross, and damn it, I'm gonna make sure it's the equivalent. They know it. It's the equivalent of the of FDR knowing about Pearl Harbor. Yeah. What did Clara Barton know, and when did she know it? No, she's a hero. Um, uh, you know, the typhoid epidemic is. Uh, 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 I was gonna say trampled, but you don't trample an epidemic. It's stifled. Uh, it's, it's, it's stymied. It's, it's um, blunted. Uh, let's say uh, blunted let's say it is thwarted uh, that seems to imply a lot of agency on the part of the epidemic let's say blunted i like that i wouldn't have chosen that word but i think it's the best one blunted is now approved by both uh hosts um and the you know in a time when the hard work of the working class was kind of the marker of their pride and success the town took great pride in the fact that the furnaces were back up just within a few days see um even we need to start earning that cash back for our andrew carnegie i mean our suits have all been are going to be a little bit muddy when we go pick i know that's the thing like you look at it through a modern lens and you're like boy these people really were fed a line of goods by wh- but, whoever the shareholders of the cambria ironworks but it's from seemed, their perspective it did mean something to them yeah the heap is still smoldering and they're all living in tent cities but you know the ironworks is is back um, Those are great Bruce Springsteen lyrics. The heap is still smoldering. I hear they, uh, they, the chicken man uh, burned down on the Johnstown Bridge last night. So, uh, you know, after this terrible damage that wiped out a city, of course, the people of Johnstown went to the state of Pennsylvania and said, hey, uh, nice dam maintenance, mm. you yo-yos. Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's get the, and, you know, let's get the state courts to work on this. What kind of compensation will we get? You will be shocked to hear that... Um, because the Carnegies and the Mellons and the Fricks and the Phipps and the Blips and the Blorps were all doing fine. Yeah. Whereas it's just the German and Welsh immigrants at the bottom of the hill. Right. Who are, um, who are, uh, you know, drinking cholera water and, and living in tents. The courts find that they, that the rich are culpable and find them hundreds of millions of dollars. It is ruled an act of God. Nobody gets mm-hmm. any compensation, whatever. Cause what are you going to do? God made a lot of rain come in from uh, from across the New York border, as I call it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the dam would have been fine if it hadn't rained so much that day. God, I mean, I mean not technically untrue. They're not wrong, yeah. um, but the idea that it took a it took decades of mismanagement by state and private actors to but weaken the dam. Did that not inflame a kind of movement? Was there not then a resultant? working people's movement for greater dam safety? You'd think, not that I know of. I mean, on, you know, on the on a regulatory level, I bet I bet people started to look at a lot of these old dams. But, but as, as any kind of like rise up labor kind of social movement, uh, I'm not aware. The fact that they all just immediately went back to the foundries and were like, we got to keep these forges going, you know, makes me think it was just, you, you know, you thought about you thought about your lot in a different way back then. But it was it was something that every American school kid could have told you about all the way into the 50s. Right. Was it seen as an allegory of, uh, like, uh, triumph over disaster? Or what, did people talk about it as a kind of rich v. poor? Uh, that's a more recent take? I think that's a more recent overlay. because And today it's very tempting to us. It's like, you know. Well, who who are the villains? Well, there's all these rich people the in nice houses. Age. But at the time, being a rich person in a nice house was no crime. No, <laughs> as it should be. Not like now. <laughs> I mean, today that you know, at the time that would have been thought of as a marker of you know, well, who are the morally superior? Who is the 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 staunch backbone of American society? It's our Carnegies and our Mellons right. building our botanical gardens and funding our libraries and and employing thousands right so whereas now there's a whole school of thought that the person with two dollars more is the person that is two percent more corrupt uh i know you believe that all billionaires are, are job creators john listen that's the american way ken 
And that concludes the Johnstown Flood. Not the Jonestown Flood. No. Different flood. The Johnstown Flood. Entry 674.NA0108. Certificate number 33180 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, I don't know if you've noticed, Ken, but I've been social mediating lately. Just, Socially mediating. Just in time for your verified check to turn gray as ashes and wash away. You know what? I'll believe that when I see it. I think I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a blue check as long as I want one. Elon said this morning that uh his vision is a world where un- everyone has one or no one has one? No, it's even worse. Where unblue checked people are the equivalent of spam email. They're still talking, but the algorithm might not let you listen. If you didn't buy Twitter, Weird. if you didn't buy Twitter blue. Weird. The thing is that the check only has value if it elevates people to the level of the people they envied before who had blue checks. If you take the blue checks away from the Ken Jenningses, then the only people that that have blue checks are, are the it's the Ben Shapiro. It's the star bellied sneeches and the sneeches without stars on their bellies. We'll just be switching it up. Yeah. Except in this case the the um the mayor of Sneechtown has control over uh over who gets access to the uh, to the apparatus. When futurelings in the future are listening to this, they will know how it all pans out. But I'm guessing you will not pay $8 a month for Twitter Blue. Am I right? I will pay not one red cent for any kind of Twitter perk. I would uh, thank my lucky stars if Twitter became unusable. <laughs> the funniest thing to me is people trying to find a Twitter uh, equivalent to jump through. Oh, you haven't gone over to Mastodon Because yet? it's brought so much joy into their lives <laughs> that they're like, we need a lifeboat. Yeah, get us another Twitter. How can we replicate this? Uh, no. Um, so I'm going to change my Twitter handle to Ken Jennings <laughs> and I'm going to start uh, just saying super like get, get that, uh, get weird that, anarchist things. Get that verified, man. Um, anyway, if you are still holding on desperately to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, Reddit, Pinterest, um, the message board at dwellmagazine.com. You can find us in all those locations at Omnibus Project. I think I need to know your uh, username on the message boards at (laughs) dwell.com. That was a little too revealing. It's it's called EichlerFan69 at omnibusproject.com. Uh, You can find at Ken Jennings uh, for Ken and also at Ken Jennings for me. (laughs) Look for the one with the blue check. (laughs) Ken underscore Jennings. Uh, You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can send us mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. It looks like you just opened a mail over there. I I just opened the mail. Nick sent us a picture of their grandfather who was a barber. He's, he's, oh, this is very apropos. He's shown standing next to some kind of dam. I don't he know. is in front of a dam. What does it say on the back? There's a lot of writing. Patterson, New Jersey. I don't know where this is. Uh, he says uh, his grandfather was a barber. Um, and he, as a result, Nick inherited this um, book of Nagel style hair designs and instructions. Oh my goodness. Which has sponsored by Redkin. Some obviously Nagel inspired airbrushed art. Wow. That's amazing. Here, hand that over. Take a look. But the funny part is Nick says he doesn't know why his grandfather even would have had this because despite being a barber, he only gave two different, he only (laughs) gave two different haircuts. He gave the men the haircut he learned how to do in the army or in the military. Right. And then he had the haircut he always gave to his wife, Nick's grandmother. That's fantastic. This is uh, this is phenomenal. There are some wonderful illustrations in this. I don't know if I can learn anything. So we'll put some knockoff Nagel art on the uh, on the Patreon for you. And speaking of the Patreon, John. Oh, that's right. If you uh, would be so kind, go immediately now to your browser. We'll if, wait. We'll wait while you bring it up. If you haven't signed up for Patreon.com, do so now. And if you're already a Patreon. Uh, if you already have a Patreon account, go navigate to patreon.com slash omnibus project and pledge between five and fifty dollars monthly <laughs> to support omnibus. Uh, your contribution, a generous a pledge, helps us keep the show on the air. Shores up the earthworks dam that That's is right. that is this endeavor. It keeps Mindy from uh, e- emailing me every day, going, Where's my money? 
Mindy emails Biatch. you. Mindy emails you asking for money. Yeah, she's is she like, shaking you down? Yeah, because of this whole thing that went down half a dozen years ago, where <laughs> <coughs> I ended up owing her a bunch of cash. So anyway, uh, that's Patreon.com/slash Omnibus Project, and uh, you can hang out with other Futurelings on Facebook and at Dwell, and um, they're a lively group, and and I highly suggest it. It's not required that you join Patreon to hang out with other Futurelings. But it's highly recommended. It sure gives you some clout in those circles. It does. If you if you can begin every post with, well, as a Patreon supporter, yeah, comma, and and if you if you make some kind of comment, people will definitely swing in and say like, well, are you on the Patreon? Well, then why don't you just you don't know anything about mail trucks? You wouldn't know a big moose if you saw one. There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of moose material on on Facebook. Some would say too much. No. We've never done a single show about moose. No, we have not. But that doesn't that doesn't stop me. Maybe I will do a moose show. I just saw a link to there's a long Jim Gaffigan routine, I think, in his latest special about how moose are bigger than you think. Like no one had warned him, he feels. Like he thought <laughs> he thought they're gonna be like full full uh, fun bullwinkle type yeah, cows. forest denizens. Right. And no one had actually and he's he's angry. The premise of the joke is that he's angry that no one has prepared him for how big and dangerous a moose could be. I think a lot of people are accustomed to how big a deer right. is. And um and so they assume, It's just gonna be that with antlers. Yeah, it's a moose bigger a, antlers. A slightly bigger deer, but that's not what it is. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, if the wall of water is bearing down on us at this moment, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>